Last week, um, about 7.30 uh, last week, I, uh, I went out, um, I'd, I'd finished working on my message, right, uh, last week, and I, uh, I went out to Anne's and I said, oh, it's a bit scratchy, this one. <laughs> and uh, I came to, uh, I, I'd, I'd honestly felt that. I, uh, I came to church and uh, I hid behind the curtain there for a minute and uh, I, said to, uh, I said to God, I said, you, you just got to get, get this one done, you know, like not that he doesn't have to get everyone done, but you've got to get this one done because this is pretty scratchy and a bit, it feels a bit lame to me and uh, asked for the spirit to fill me and you know, he did and uh, it, it felt like God was up to something last week, it felt like God was up to something the week before, like we've had some, uh, some good times where God's been up to stuff and uh, this week we're going to talk about money and possessions. It's just, <laughs> it's, it's, and it's like, sometimes people go, why do you have to wreck it? Like, we're going really well. Why do you have to start talking about money and possessions? And this is the beauty of preaching through books of the Bible, all right? Because it's not a stitch up. It's not like the last two weeks I've just been setting you up and this is the real week where I'm going to go after you. It's like, no, we get up to the next section in Acts and it talks all about money and possessions and the way that people were handling it. Uh, so let's go to it. And let's read it. So if you can open up your uh, Bibles, that would be great. We're going to go to Acts chapter 4. We're going to start at verse 32. Acts chapter 4, verse 32. Acts 4, verse 32. Now the full number of those who believed which is over 5,000 by this point in time, were of one heart and soul, and no one, no one, said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own, but they had everything in common. And with great power, the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and great grace was upon them all. There was not a needy person among them, for as many as were owners of lands or houses sold them and brought the uh, proceeds of what was sold and laid it at the apostles' feet and it was distributed to each as any had need. Thus Joseph, who was also called by the apostles Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, a Levite, a native of Cyprus, sold the field that belonged to him and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. But a man named Ananias with his wife Sapphira sold a piece of property. And with his wife's knowledge, he kept back for himself some of the proceeds and brought only a part of it and laid it at the apostles' feet. But Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and to keep back for yourself part of the proceeds of the land? While it remained unsold, did it not remain your own? And after it was sold, was it not at your disposal? Why is it that you have contrived this deed in your heart? You've not lied to men, but to God. When Ananias heard these words... He fell down and breathed his last, the understatement of the year, and great fear came upon all who heard of it. The young man rose and wrapped him up and carried him out and buried him. After an interval of about three hours, his wife came in, not knowing what had happened. And Peter said to her, tell me whether you sold the land for so much. She said, yes, for so much. But Peter said to her, How is it that you have agreed together to test the Spirit of the Lord? Behold, the feet of those who have buried your husband are at the door, and they will carry you out. Immediately she fell down at his feet and breathed her last. 
When the young men came in, they found her dead. They carried her out and buried her beside her husband. And great fear came upon the whole church and upon all who heard of these things. Now in this passage that we've just read, I, I think we see three things. One of the things we see really clearly is that no one in the early church considered that they owned anything. The second thing I think we see is we see amazingly generous sharing. And the last thing I think we see is the cancer of hoarding. Let's kick into it. No one considered that they owned anything. Have a look at verse 32. Now the full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul and no one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own, but they had everything in common. They shared everything that they had. Everyone in this church community considered that what they had was for the benefit of everyone. And it's a sharing, right? Now what kind of sharing is this? I think this is the kind of sharing that happens in a family. Let me tell you about some sharing that happens in our family. <laughs> what's, what's yours is mine, what's mine is yours. That's how families work. True? I mean, in our family, it's not your water bottle for long before you see someone else walking around with your water bottle drinking out of it. I, I buy sometimes, I get to buy some cool stuff and it's not long before the kids kind of snake it, right? Or they want to snake it. It's like, Daddy, you done with that? Can I start using that now? And sometimes I don't even ask. They're off jogging or doing something with something that I'd bought. It's like, how did you get that? My caps end up in their rooms. You know, anyone who li- who's lived in a family, and you all have, knows what this is like, right? It's like what's mine is yours and what's yours is mine. That's just kind of how it works in a family. I mean, things are just owned kind of in common. And we draw the line probably on underwear and that kind of stuff, right? But it's, it's owned in common. It's kind of how it rolls in a family. You know, the safest way probably in the Sondergeld house to retain ownership of something is to make sure it's pink. <laughs> All right? If it's pink, you're pretty safe. Now, what happens every now and then, as happens in every family, is that there come moments in our family where one of us, and maybe it could even be the parents, but someone in the family will just say, I don't want to share. And have you ever noticed that in a family when someone really digs in and they go, I'm not going to share, it's kind of like, <coughs> like the gears are grinding at that point in the family. Like they really kind of put their foot down and say, I'm not going to share. You know, th- there's not that much stuff in our house that isn't fair game. But when people draw really hard lines about not sharing, it really starts to mess a family up. You know, one of the lines that Ange and I actually say to the kids is, okay, so we bought your clothes. You don't want to share? We bought your clothes. And, you know, it's kind of your bed, but we actually bought the bed too. And so you're sleeping in our bed. And just in case you didn't know, you're actually sleeping in our house as well. It's like you want to pull a really hard line on ownership, it starts to get a little bit messy. I mean, when you're a child in a family, what does it even mean to say that you own something? Do you have private possessions when you're in a family? You know, prior to my oldest two boys uh, getting a job and earning some money and being able to pay for things, everything they had was given to them. You know, you could say, did, did they own stuff? Well, kind of. <laughs> they kind of did. 
you know, and, and that's, I think, what you see in, in Acts 5 verse 4 there where, uh, where Peter's talking to uh, Ananias. You know, he says, um, while it remained unsold, did it not remain your own? It's like, did Ananias actually own a piece of land? Well, kind of. But I think that Ananias and Sapphira and you and I actually own things in a similar kind of way to my kids own things in our house. You know, you could say it was, it was their bed, it was their cupboard, it was their clothes, but was it really? And you kind of go, well, it kind of was, kind of was theirs. And I think at the end of the day, kids in a family own stuff uh, in the same way that we own stuff with respect to God, okay? Here's a um, powerful, uh, clear uh, verse in Scripture, Psalm 24, verse 1 to 2. The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof, the world and those who dwell therein, for he has founded it upon the seas and established it upon the rivers. Let me tell you how it works. You made it, it's yours. That's it. That's what you see in that verse. God made it all, so it's his. That's how it works. Now, some of you would go, well, I've made stuff. So that must mean it's mine. And I just say to you, well, you actually need to think about input costs. Okay? You have to think about input costs. If someone gave you the input and you worked to bring something about, then it actually gets a little bit more cloudy. Let me give you the example of, I'm a manual arts teacher by background, right? So someone comes to me and they said, I'm going to provide the input costs, which is I'm going to provide the timber for you to, to make a table. I'm not giving it to you, I'm providing it for you, all right? So then I get to work machining this timber and I make a really nice dining room table. Whose table is it? Well, it becomes a little bit more complex at that point, doesn't it? Because they provided the wood, I actually provided the input, it starts to get a little bit more complex. You know, because it, inputs are important. They provided the materials, I provided the skills and the expertise to remodel the materials. In some way, both people have rights to it. But drill down a little bit further. Where did the, uh, where'd the timber come from? So I love Jarrah, right? If you ever come to our house, you'll notice there's a lot of furniture made out of Jarrah, really beautiful dark red timber. It's, uh, it's grown or grows most commonly in the uh, southwestern corner of Western Australia. Now, where'd the timber come from? Wow, Western Australia? Not geographically. Where did, the, where did the timber come from? Did it come from Western Australia? Well, geographically it did. Well, it grew. Oh, what did it grow from? Well, sun, water, soil, CO2. And we just cut it down and use it. Yep. Well, did you provide the sun, the water and the CO2? You see what the problem is? Like you drill down further and further and you just kind of run into trouble because you go, well, I'm pretty good at creating CO2. You're all doing that right now and that's obviously helping the trees grow. You see, when it comes down to uh, ownership, if you provide the inputs and you bring the skill and the effort to make it, Psalm 24 verse 1 to, 1 to 2 is saying you own it. Pretty, it's pretty straightforward, Okay. Now, when it comes to our, uh, the, the, the land, the, the world that we live in, who, who made it? Well, God made it. 
And did God have any input cost? Well, technically he didn't, right? Because he just speaks and stuff happens. But he, he actually has just created everything. So he actually owns everything, including every single breath that you take. But some people might say, and some of you might say, yeah, but I worked for it. <laughs> I worked for it. He might have provided all the stuff, but I actually worked for it. You know, and sometimes in our family we hear that kind of pushback upon this thing, upon this idea that of, of ownership is like, well, I actually worked for it. I got out and I worked really hard. I did paid jobs in the house and I actually worked for it. So that becomes mine. Can everyone go to Deuteronomy chapter 8 with me? This is a particularly disorienting scripture. Now, most scriptures are disorienting. In a, uh, in a really good way. But Deuteronomy chapter 8. Deuteronomy 8, we'll start at verse 11. I mean, this, this is a warning to the Israelites going into the land of Canaan, but this could be a warning to Australian Christians uh, equally. Take care lest you forget the Lord your God by not keeping his commandments and his rules and his statutes, which I command you today, lest when you have eaten and are full and have built good houses and live in them, and when your herds and flocks multiply and your silver and gold is multiplied and all that you have is multiplied, listen to the danger, that's the danger, then your heart be lifted up and you forget the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery." He led you through the great and terrifying wilderness with its fiery serpents and scorpions and thirsty ground where there was no water. He brought you out of the flinty rock. He fed you in the wilderness with manna that your fathers did not know that he might humble you and test you to do, good, to do you good in the end. Listen to this. Beware lest you say in your heart, my power and the might of my hand have gotten me this wealth. You hear that? You shall remember the Lord your God For it is he who gives you the power to get wealth that he may confirm his covenant that he swore to your fathers as it is this day. So you can't, you go to God and you say, well, I worked for it. He goes, well, how'd you work for it? I gave you the power, I gave you the might, I gave the ability to work for it. There's nothing that you can do to actually own in an absolute sense anything. You just don't. No one does. No one absolutely owns anything that you've got. So, you know, this is the, where it leads you. This is the question that uh, becomes really pivotal at this point in time. If you don't own anything, then what are you? Do you know what you are? You are an investment manager for God. That's what you are. You're an investment manager. You actually don't own any of the wealth that you have. And he gives you a cut to live on. But really, the main job that you have is, I've got all this stuff, how do I actually invest that into the things that Jesus wants to do? How do you preserve, how how do you be preserved against this danger of having lots and lots of stuff? And we all here have lots and lots of stuff. How do you get preserved from, from moving into that place of just being spiritually caustic to you? Do you know how you do it? You give lots of it away. 
That's what you do. And some of you would kind of go, yeah, but I don't have a heart for giving. I'd just go, you know what Jesus said? He said, where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. If you want your heart to be in God's work, start giving your cash because your heart will follow your money. That's how it works. 1 Timothy 6, verse 17 to 19 says this, As for the rich in this present age, charge them not to be haughty, nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. They are to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share. Thus, storing up treasure for themselves as a good foundation for the future so that they may take hold of that which is truly life. Probably all of us are rich. You think globally, probably all of us are rich. And, and here's the bottom line. Some of you might go, well, I'm, I don't have much money, so I don't have a problem with it. Who knows that you can have as big a problem with money when you're poor as when you're rich? So you are an investment manager for God, a steward of God's money. And what's God going to do? Well, you know what God does? And this is a really clear pattern in Scripture, is that God blesses you so that you can bless other people. And it all kind of goes wrong when God blessing you becomes about you. This is the natural order of stuff and money. God shares, we receive, we share, others receive. That's, that's kind of normal. That's kind of how it's all meant to work you know what you've got here is you've actually got remember i actually preached on this you probably don't remember but back in mark in the series of mark that that we did going through mark um i think the the sermon was called the irrepressible reality all right and you know what the irrepressible reality is is that at the core the atomic core of everything that's been created is the unselfish trinity god the father the son and the holy spirit who all just live unselfishly for one another, that's the centre of all reality. And one of the points that I made in that sermon was that unselfishness wins. It just does. Unselfishness wins. It will win and it will win because the core of all reality that everything anchors on is unselfishness. So what does God do? Well, He just gives you lots of stuff. Lots of stuff. Precious stuff, right? The, uh, the, price, the spot price for gold is, is pretty high right now. But do you know something? That's not even as precious as water. That's not even as precious as the air that you've got right now. It's not as precious as the life that you've lived over the last number of decades, however old you are. What does he do? He's a giver. Of course. <laughs> That's what you do. When you're the unselfish trinity, you just give and you give and you give and you give and you're generous and generous and generous and the gig is that people who get your gifts are meant to be generous 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 and unselfish and give their stuff away and to share their stuff and do you know something about god's giving and the giving that we see in acts chapter 4 here is it's not the reciprocal stuff right it's not like i invite someone over for dinner and then i expect an invite back and we do this weird kind of trade thing that goes on that's trading that's not giving right that's what it is it's trading what you've actually got in acts chapter 4 is you've got the people 
in Acts chapter 4, the ones that, that God calls to be generous, and, it, and it's a generous giving, it's not a compulsion thing, come and they give their, their stuff and their money so that other people can be blessed by it, so that there aren't any needy people kicking around the place. And it's not reciprocal. It's like, if I sell this land, you've got to sell your land and give me the money. It's not that at all. You know, back in the day, uh, commentators say back in the day that um, friendship, back in the day, um, in the Greco-Roman day, was that you'd kind of be equals and you'd kind of give kind of equal measures to each other. And I thought, well, it's probably not that much different to friendship in our day. People don't tend to be friends with people who take more than they, they give. You tend to find someone who's gone on a similar kind of level to you and you kind of give and take and there's that kind of... And I'm not saying that's a bad thing. I'm just saying that tends to be how it happens. This commentator was saying that is just not what we're seeing in Acts chapter 4, this kind of reciprocal thing. It's like, I give that, you give that back and then we're all sweet. And that's not even what I'm promoting today. I'm, I'm not saying that if you be generous and give stuff away, God's going to give all of that back. Like that's trading <laughs> at that point. That's, that's actually not giving. And that isn't actually how God works with you. What, what thing have you given God that he thinks is really valuable and important that is kind of payback? Now I'm not saying that God doesn't value the things that we... I'm not saying he doesn't value our love for him and our obedience to him and our following of him. I'm just saying, like, if you want to actually do things on a trading basis with God, you're just going to be in trouble. And you just need to know that when God gives you stuff and when God gives me stuff, he's not giving it to us to go out and do some trading with it. He's, going out, he's, he's telling us to go out and invest it in his kingdom. Just because you give 10 bucks away doesn't mean God's going to give you 10 bucks back. It's like we're going to be even Stephen at the end of it. All right? It's just going to be even Stephen. God's actually saying, you know what I'm going to do? And we'll get to this in a minute, right? But you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to bless you so that you can be generous. That's what I'm going to do. And, and it's, the blessing is not going to come from the people that you're generous to giving you money back. The blessing comes from God being generous to you. So he'd be generous to you and then you give kind of a bit more in a one-way street. Now, I, I've been told, um, over the, I won't say when or by who, but over the last eight years of the project, I actually have literally been told by someone, pretty much in these words, that you should never talk about money again at church. <laughs> okay? And some of you, even now, it's, it's, it's like even as I'm talking about it, you just go, what's he doing? He's trying to twist my arm. He's trying to get something out of me. You know, I, I actually think that one of the things that happens for us is what we do with our money and our faith tends to separate a bit. It's like we're all kind of good about, you know, let's be filled with the Spirit, let's have some miracles, let's have dot, 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 dot. But you know what actually happens straight after it in Acts chapter 4, after a whole bunch of this stuff has happened, is, uh, man, the revivals hit their wallets, hasn't it? 
It said that Wallace, my, my old man used to say that, right? He used to say, uh, you can tell when a revival's broken out when it reaches people's wallets. <laughs> See, there isn't a separation between your faith and your finances. There just isn't one. There isn't. You know, when this uh, person told me I should never talk about money again, I was thinking, well, that's going to be really hard because Jesus talks a lot about money. And we don't even go close, I don't think, to talking about money at the project as much as Jesus does. We just don't. They're actually really closely linked. If you want an outstanding little book on this, it's by a guy called Randy Alcorn and it's called The Treasure Principle. Like, really big time impacted me. And here's a question that Randy Alcorn asked in his book, The Treasure Principle. How much do your possessions own you? It's an interesting spin, isn't it? Because you just kind of go, no, I own stuff. It's like, how much do your possessions actually own you? Now, the awkward thing about talking about this today, right, is right now, in this message, probably the way that you're feeling is nothing like the church felt at the end of Acts chapter 4. <laughs> All right? Maybe it is. Maybe some of you are sitting there, there and you're just going, yeah, I just want to be really generous and I want to give stuff and I've got a block of land and I've got a house, I want to go home and I'm going to talk to a real estate agent, get that thing sold so that we can actually come and we can be really, really generous. Maybe that's you, but you've got to understand in Acts 4, the vibe is not some kind of arm twist going on. It's like there's this great grace upon the people and they just want to give. And it's like the elders or the, uh, the apostles, which, which are kind of leading the church at that point in time, the leaders of the church, they've got a headache because people are coming along and they're giving money uh, to, to help out people who are in need. And this gets us to the second one, generous sharing. Here's the, um, here's the reality. Everyone didn't sell their houses and lands. But lots of them did. Because they just said, this doesn't belong to us. We, we want to bless those who are needy. We want to we give money to the needy people. They still had stuff that they would call their own. But they realized that the stuff that they had was for the benefit of everyone. I tried to find it on YouTube today. Does anyone remember that old, uh, I'm pretty sure it was a super cheap ad, super cheap auto ad about the dude and the next door neighbor coming over and borrowing stuff all the time from the guy's shed. Does anyone remember that one? It was, it was a pretty funny ad, right? And, and there, there are some issues with lending stuff, right? You've, you've got to work some stuff out there. But you know what? When the Spirit fills you, it's not just about the way that you pray. It's not just about the way that you obey. It's not just about the way that you do mission. It's about the way that you do your possessions, your stuff. You know, this is, we actually saw this back in Acts chapter 2, right? This is verse 45 of chapter 2. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. You know, God blesses you to be a blessing. That's what he does. And I'll, I'll let you in on a secret, right? <laughs> if you use his stuff really well, probably he's going to give you more. Now, that's not a guarantee, right? He can do whatever he wants, but he'll probably give you more. If you're faithful with little, right, and you're careful with little, and I'm not saying that you don't have budgets and you don't do all that sort of stuff, right? You need to do all that sort of stuff. And you need to be wise about what you do with your money, but 
if you're faithful with little, you'll be faithful with much. Listen to uh, Deuteronomy 15 verse 4. But there will be no poor among you. Why? For the Lord will bless you in the land that the Lord your God is giving you for an inheritance to possess. And people are going into Canaan. It's like you are going to be really blessed and there's not going to be any poor among you because you're just going to share everything and the land's going to be such a blessing to you. I'm going to provide for you and you can make sure everyone gets looked after. That's what we're actually seeing in Acts chapter 4. Can you go to 2 Corinthians 9 with me? 2 Corinthians 9. Second Corinthians 9, we're going to start at verse 6. You doing okay? Yeah? Okay. I hope you are. I could say something like, I don't want any of you to die, like happens in Acts 5. That's why I'm preaching this today, but that would be unfaithful to Scripture. But anyway, Second Corinthians 9, I don't want any of you to die, by the way, but anyway, let's, let's get on with it. The point... This is 2 Corinthians 9 verse 6. The point is this. Whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly. And whoever sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. That's pretty straightforward. Like you want a big harvest or a small harvest. If you want a small harvest, sow small. If you want a big harvest, sow big. Verse 7. Each one must give as he has decided in his heart, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. Listen to the next verse. This is like, it's not even a word, but this is the awesomest part. Just killing the English teachers right now. And God is able to, listen to this, God is able to make all grace abound to you so that having all sufficiency in all things at all times, you you may abound in every good work. As it is written, he has distributed freely, he has given to the poor, his righteousness endures forever. He who supplies seed to the sower and bread for food will supply and multiply your seed for sowing and increase the harvest of your righteousness. You will be enriched in every way to be generous in every way. You hear that? Which through us will produce thanksgiving to God. So here's here's what you could do. And I've read stories about people doing this. You could plan to be generous right so rather than just going we're going to meet all the bills here right and then we'll be generous with what's left over now that that would be good as long as you have left over right there is an economic law that says that expenditure always rises to meet income which is generally true okay people just find more stuff to uh, spend their money on here's here's one thing that you could do and i read a story about this just the other day about a guy who said, I don't really have that much money coming out of my business, but I'm going to sit down, I'm going to do a budget, and next year I want to give $50,000. All right? Didn't even have 50000 Didn't even have $50,000 cream off the top of his business. You know what God did? Blessed his business. He gave 50000 I mean, the last bit in the story was that the guy actually gave a million dollars from his business. Because every time God kind of provided for him to be able to be generous God provided a bit more you see that see the connection here 
The people know that God's generous and he gives to them and so they can be generous. And rather than just kind of giving God the leftovers, you could actually sit down and just go, I want to, I'm going to set this benchmark for next year. And do you know what? Who knows what breakdown on your car God's going to just make not happen. Or the washing machine might go for another 10 years. Or you might get another job or you might get a raise. True? Like that stuff happens. Like, like it might be that you need to go home and I need to go home and we all just need to go, God, what, what would you have us to, to, to be generous? How, how would you have us to do that? How much? And not as in we're going to miss out. It's like, man, maybe God's just going to bless us a whole bunch. And you know what? Even if he doesn't, <laughs> you could just give it anyway. Alcorn again. God sees our faith and finances as inseparable. Here's, here's a kicker, right? It actually isn't about the amount of money that you give. It's about your heart. And here's the bottom line. If you, it'd be good for you to go back to uh, Acts, Acts chapter 4. If you can get back there, Acts chapter 4, verse 33. You know, right in the middle of this generosity with possessions, what's going on? Well, Acts 4 verse 33, and with great power the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus and great grace was upon them all. If, if you're tight, if you're tight, you probably don't understand the gospel. you probably don't understand how generous Jesus has been to you. That, I think that's what's going on here in Acts chapter 4, is they get that. They get that Jesus has just been insanely generous toward them. And so it just makes complete and total sense, like we should just be generous too. <laughs> we should do that. And, and it wasn't begrudging and it wasn't unhappy. They were stoked about it. Now, who here actually thinks that would be a good church to be in? Like, honestly, just put your hand up if you think that would be a cool place to be in. Like, that was hopping, right, in Acts 4. It's like, yeah, man, like, yeah, we'll all get in on that one. That must be hopping. I mean, there's signs, there's wonders, people getting healed, there's opposition, yeah, but the gospel's going out, people are getting saved, and everyone's sharing stuff. It's a good joint to be in, right? It is more blessed to give than receive. Here's what Hudson Taylor, a missionary to China, I think, said. He said this, The less I spent on myself and the more I gave to others, the fuller of happiness and blessing did my soul become. At the end of uh, Acts uh, chapter 4 there, there's a fascinating little statement and uh, I think it leads really naturally into Acts chapter 5. So if you've got it open in front of you, I just want to read it. Thus Joseph, who was also called by the apostles Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, a Levite, a native of Cyprus, sold a field that belonged to him and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. Uh, Joseph's held up as an example. Not that everyone must sell their property and give the proceeds, but that the people must share. And you notice here that um, 
that the way that this was kind of happening in Acts chapter 4 is not like there was a need and people responded to a need all the time. I think there's a little bit of a vibe here, like we're just selling stuff and we're bringing the money and let's give the church leaders a bit of a headache in working out where this stuff needs to go so that people can be cared for really well. You know, people, it's good for people to share. And, and it, it raises something that we just need to deal with over the last few moments here and, and I think it has to do with the power of money. Money is not powerful in and of itself. Money's powerful for what you can do with it, right? It wasn't, this is going to be showing my age big time. Anyone here remember two and one cent pieces? <laughs> Why did they stop making those? Because it became more expensive to make them than they were actually worth, right? See, see money actually doesn't have value really in and of itself. It's what you can actually do with it. Right? It's, it doesn't have intrinsic value, it has instrumental value. It's what you can actually do with it that matters. So what can you do with money? Well, you can get prestige, security, comfort, health treatments, a good life, or so we think. And what we actually see in uh, Acts chapter 5, which is uh, the last section today, is, is that money can buy you other stuff as well. What, what happens uh, in uh, Acts 5, verse 1 to 11? Um, money's in the mix. And uh, you know there's a great irony here because you know the name uh, Ananias means Yahweh is gracious. Isn't that ironic? Yahweh is gracious and Sapphira actually means beautiful. You know, what we've got is we've got this situation where there's a stitch up between Ananias and Sapphira. His wife knew that they were withholding some of the money his wife was in on it with him. And this is kind of like the first sin of the church that we actually see. And it actually has a similar kind of feel to Genesis chapter 3 with the fall of humanity. Everything seems to be going along quite swimmingly. And then all of a sudden, something happens. They kept back a little bit for themselves. We don't know how much. And then made out that they were more generous than what they actually were. They were using their possessions not for other people's benefit, but for their own benefit. Do you see what they're doing? They're actually using the power of money. They're using money to buy the acclaim and the respect from other people. In a weird kind of way. They wanted to enjoy the respect and the acclaim and the admiration of the church without the sacrifice. That's what they wanted, and they were using money to buy it. And when you curve in on yourself, there's a uh, Latin phrase in curvitus in se, which means to curve in on oneself. Um, curving in on yourself, if I can just say it this way, I, I hope not to offend anyone, it buggers up everything. It just does. That's, that's what messed it up in Genesis 3. And what you've actually got here is you've got a couple in the middle of it who sell some land, and they bring it and they cur they've curved in on themselves and it's going to be this kind of crevice that kind of opens up in the early church. And you've got an unnatural order. God shares, we receive, we share, others receive. It's now become God shares, we receive, we share to get for ourselves. That's kind of what happened with Ananias and Sapphira. They shared to get stuff for them. 
Now, I think it's meant to be sobering. They got, God killed them. You know, and there's some stuff in this story that is unashamedly just, you know, like, I tell, I, let me give you a couple. They get killed on the spot and they don't get a second chance. That's one thing I just go, Phew. Do you know another thing is Ananias gets hauled out and buried and his wife doesn't even know. She comes in, she doesn't have a clue. Now verse 5 says, after Ananias dies, a great fear came upon all who heard it. You know, awe is reverence mixed with fear. So you should use the word awesome to describe God, but probably not for an ice cream <laughs> as much. And if you actually have reverence mixed with fear in front of an ice cream, we need to talk. It's intense, right? But you know, you know what you come face to face with in uh, Acts 5 is we're not playing with Play-Doh here. We're, we're actually talking about the God of the universe. That's who we're talking about. And you might go, well, how's that for you? Well, they sinned against God. Peter said that. And you go, well, don't they get a chance to repent? Sapphira didn't get a chance, did she? You know, she... Should she have got a second shot? You know, it's like Peter could have said, do you really want to tell me what's going on? Because this is going to end really badly. Well, you know what? Sometimes it's just like that. Sometimes you don't get a second chance. And that's what the fear of God is. You're not... God is not someone to be trifled with. <laughs> I mean, think about Moses. You remember the story of Moses that the people needed, uh, needed water and, and God told Moses, he said, I want you to go and I want you to talk to the rock. And you know, you know what he did, right? He went to the rock and he hit it with his stick. And you know what God said to him? You're done. You are not coming into the land of Canaan now. That's it. Now, you look at Moses and you just go. He has put up with some serious headaches with those Israelites. You know what I'm talking about? So come on, man. Like, there's got to be a second shot here, but there's no second shot. There's no second chance on that for Moses. Doesn't mean God doesn't love him. Doesn't mean God doesn't forgive him. You know, were Ananias and Sapphira Christians? I reckon they were. Are they going to be in heaven? I reckon they will be. There's lots of second chances. But sometimes you just don't get them because God decides you don't get another one. It's, uh, it's like Aslan out of the line, the witch in the wardrobe, you know. It's, it's like when they, they, uh, the kids ask the beavers, you know, is Lion safe, you know, and the beavers kind of scoff at him and just say, safe? Aslan's not safe, but he is good. Does God still judge like the way that he judged Ananias and Sapphira? I reckon he does. Now, 
Let me just throw something uh, your way just to help you a little bit um, with this. And this is not, you could do a lot of sermons on this one, right? So um, it's going to be really unsatisfying for you, probably at one level, but hopefully it'll help you a little bit. Here's a principle that I think is generally true when you look in the scriptures, right? When the, when the revelation of who God is is clearer, God's judgment upon sin is greater and more significant. It doesn't mean that it's not all going to be squared up in the end, uh, but it looks to me like if God's really busy and active and there's some really dynamic stuff happening and you kind of walk in, you know, like you're lying on some kind of flotation device in a pool somewhere and you don't really care too much about it, usually I think you find in the scriptures that God's judgment is harsher in those moments in terms of the abruptness of it than when things are a little bit more dull. Can you just come with me to a couple of examples really quickly? 1 Samuel chapter 2. 1 Samuel chapter 2, verse 12. 1 Samuel chapter 2, verse 12. Now the sons of Eli were worthless men. Now go down to verse 17. The sin of the young men was very great in the sight of the Lord, for the men treated the offering of the Lord with contempt. Go down to verse 22. Now Eli was very old and he kept hearing all that his sons were doing to all Israel and how they lay with the women who were serving at the entrance to the tent of meeting. Now these boys were doing some bad stuff, right? But they actually didn't get smoked straight away. They did get judged, they got killed and that was God's judgment upon them but they actually were able to kind of do some of this stuff in the temple in ways that were really unrighteous and unholy. Go across to 1 Samuel 3 verse 1. Look at the comment that's made there. And the word of the Lord was rare in those days. There was no frequent vision. Like you get a sense there, like there's not a whole lot going on in terms of uh, people being really sensitive and responsive to God. And the judgment is going to be fair and it's going to be right. They end up being killed as judgment by God. But it's not, it doesn't kind of flare up and it's not like this really intense kind of in-your-face thing. Go across to Leviticus chapter 10. Now, Leviticus chapter 10 is, is kind, of, kind of shows up in the middle of setting up the tabernacle. Um, and the book of Leviticus starts with the people of Israel at Sinai, right? So there's some pretty significant stuff going on. God's just done some amazing miracles uh, with the plagues. He's just got them through the Red Sea. He's getting these revelations going, uh, being given to Moses on uh, Mount Sinai. Leviticus 10 verse 1 to 2 now Nadab and Abihu, the sons of Aaron, each took his censer and put fire in it and laid incense on it and offered unauthorized fire before the Lord, which he had not commanded them. And fire came out from before the Lord and consumed them and they died before the Lord. Do you see the difference? I think there's a bit of a contextual difference there. There's one where things are, people have drifted away from God and people have lost touch with him and he's pretty quiet. Now, there's still judgment there, but it tends to be less sharp. Whereas uh, when you go to Leviticus, and I think you can see some of this in other parts of the Bible. I think you can especially see this in Acts chapter 4, is that when God's out and about and he's doing stuff and there's really cool stuff happening, if you actually kind of transgress that and do something that's kind of right in his face, it's, it's sharp.
and I'm just about done. And, and it's a sober note. This is like one of those movies you go to that doesn't have a happy ending <laughs> today, <laughs> all right? And it's like, eh, shouldn't have come to church today, probably, or paid the money for the movie. It's a sober note to finish on. And I think it's, it's appropriate for it to be a sober note for us because I think it was a sober note for the early church in Acts chapter 5. What's the last verse in, uh, in, in the section in Acts chapter 5? And great fear came upon the whole church and upon all who heard of these things. I have, I have had lots and lots of moments of struggling to be generous. When uh, I went to Sydney University, um, I was in a band down there, and uh, in case you, you didn't know, I, uh, I played the drums for a bunch of years, and um, there was a store just near um, Sydney University, and it was called Drum City, and it was like, leave me not in a temptation, but deliver me from evil. Um, it was like an awesome drum store, all right? And I was probably helping to support one of the staff members there. But as you can imagine, as a, um, as a student, you, you just don't have a whole lot of cash, right? And uh, back in the day, uh, and this is, this is a bit shameful for me to admit, but um, anyway, I'll throw it out your way. Back in the day, you'd, you know, you put the application in, it used to be called off study, I don't think it's called that anymore, but you put the application in for off study and then it'd take a while for it to come through and then you get this lump sum. And I kid you not, I actually thought this on more than one occasion. This is what I thought. I had this money and I wanted to buy this drum and I thought, I've just got to go and spend this before God gets his hands on it. (laughs) Now, Peter didn't. Maybe he understood a piece of the gospel. I I was a Christian back then. But did I really get the gospel? Did I really get that God loved me and how generous God was toward me? Not on your life. Not on your life. There's no such thing as doing something in secret. It just isn't. Hebrews 4 verse 13 says, No creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give account. He sees everything that you do. It's not like, I'm going I'm to sneak off, I'm going to spend this money before God sees it. It's, you can't do that. You can't do that. As, that. as though there's something that you could get away with if you're quick enough. He sees and he knows and nothing's hidden from his sight. Maybe we'll, uh, can we have the music team come up? We'll sing today to close. It's, it's good to finish on a sober note. But what would be totally wrong would be for you to walk out of here and give out of guilt that Peter guilted you into it. Or for you to go out today and give because of fear, because God's watching everything that I'm giving and he's going to get me. Because I, I actually don't think that was the issue for Ananias and Sapphira. It wasn't that they, they weren't, they didn't get killed because they, they didn't give. 
but they use money to buy something and, and a lie about money to buy something. And they lied to God himself. The church does not need more begrudging givers. <laughs> it just doesn't. And, and if, and this shows you some of my personal battle over the years with it, right? I, I would use that scripture, God loves a cheerful giver, as an excuse not to give, right? So I'd go, I'm not cheerful, so I don't have to give. So just stay grumpy about it. If you're grumpy about it, about giving, you can just keep all your money. It's still a struggle sometimes for me. I'm not saying I've got this one rolled. Oh yeah, I love being around generous people. And not just because they're generous to me, which they are sometimes. Right? Some of you go, yeah, I'll be around generous people. But I, I love being around them and listening to them talk about sharing stuff. You know, and the weird thing is, like a really, really appropriate thing for us to do right now, which I would love to do, but it's just complex because of the way that people respond to it. I would love to just invite people who love to share anything. All right? Anything. Money, time, stuff they own, to just get up and talk about how much they love sharing. But you know what happens when you do that? And this is what really irritates me sometimes about our culture. Then there's all these people who are going to be going, oh, they're making me feel bad because I don't do it as much. And... and uh, and they got, they got more stuff than me and should we really be talking about money in church? Like you end up in all these weird... And does anyone know what I'm talking about? And it just gets weird. And it just doesn't look weird in Acts 4. It, it just doesn't. It just looks like people just love it and they love Jesus and they love the gospel and they love that 3,000 people got saved on one day and then there's more people have come in and a whole bunch of those people are needy people who don't have much stuff and they probably can't make ends meet all the time. Can you think about how cool that would be to have a group of 5,000 plus people who were united and who were being generous and sharing with one another? Can you imagine how powerful that is? You know, Jesus was the one that said it, wasn't he? You know that they'll know that they're Christians. People outside of you will know that you're Christians by your love. So why was the gospel so powerful in Acts 4? I think one of the reasons why it was so powerful is not because people were giving out of response to the gospel, but the gospel was given power by the way that people were sharing their stuff. Do you want a church like that? I do.